I anticipate concluding, for the time being, our study based primarily on Matthew 10 and verse 23, which we have somewhat colloquially called a tricky text. But we have come to this text with a reverential analysis, and we are setting over against the trivial way with which some treat this text, this substantive and careful exegesis of the passage. So I want to remind you and all of our hearers that there's a great deal more material in the previous teachings on this topic, but I do bring your attention now to the second part of what we expressed last Sunday that we would do in reference to the statement and the interpretation of Albert Schweitzer, who I argue comes to this text with a cynical disposition and treats it with a triviality that he would not treat any other person or any other form of literature. I am certain that Albert Schweitzer and those of his ilk do allow all forms of metaphor and simile, double entendre, foreshadowing, hyperbole, various figures of speech and literary devices, that these are present and they indeed enhance the works of Homer and Shakespeare, the works of Hugo and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and even Mark Twain. But when it comes to God's holy word and when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, all he can find is plain, bland literalism, which makes a mockery of the mind of the Lord Jesus. And we are nonetheless taking that position and we are driving a wedge between that lid of interpretation that boxes this text into an artificial, shallow understanding, and we are using this wedge to pry that lid open so that we can demonstrate how illegitimate that kind of approach is, and then we can ask the more serious question as to what indeed are the depths of this passage. I do not argue that it isn't, as it were, boxed in in some sense. That is to say, God had an intention in inspiring this verse, and we cannot make this verse mean just whatever we feel like. But by using this sort of approach, which indeed does deal with a somewhat well-represented position, unfortunately, in the environs of the theological seminaries and in scholarly writings by, again, manifesting the untenableness of Schweitzer's position, we can then posit to our hearts the need to plumb the profundity in the depths of the text. And so, dear brothers and sisters, you will understand that a wedge has two sides, and we now turn our attention to the other side of the wedge, the previous side we looked at last Sunday, and that was that there is too little going on in this text for it to be taken seriously as just plain, straightforward statements that mean what Jesus said and no more. And Jesus anticipated that the 12 that he was looking at would have a short journey throughout the cities of Israel. And before they were 
through with that effort, then the parousia would occur. Schweitzer says Jesus was arguing that the end of the age would take place and that the scriptural concept of the Son of Man's coming would occur, that Jesus thought that the power of God would come and somehow transform him, I guess something like what he experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration, it would invigorate him. Maybe Schweitzer thought he would spin around a few times and his uh, robes would fall off and he'd get a big S on his chest for soup or something or other, and then the Son of Man would come. Well, we're making light of this position because it does deserve, in my estimation, a bit of that treatment. Here's a man who would not step on a bug, but he walks all over the sacred text and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and was nonetheless a notable humanitarian. Allow that in itself to be a lesson for your hearts as to how to discern in our times between those that represent God and those that do not. Testing fruit goes beyond just looking at the outside visage and appearance. It requires a searching of their positions and whether or not they are speaking according to the light of God's word. The other side of this wedge, which it is fine with me if the wedge turns out to be an axe head, it's not that I have any carnal violence in my heart against Schweitzer or anyone else, but I don't mind putting an axe to this nonsense and manifesting very powerfully by God's word that these errors are manifestly ridiculous. I turn then to the other side of the spectrum. And I present to you that what is involved in Matthew chapter 10 involves also too much for the Schweitzian interpretation to be taken seriously. Look with me, for example, at the 17th verse of Matthew chapter 10. In our first study, I designated the 17th through the 23rd verse, or the 17th through the 23rd verse, as representing the conflict. Jesus, after calling the disciples, commissioning them, he describes the conflict that they would encounter. And let's begin to read in the 17th verse the following statements. Jesus says, But beware of men. Here again, right away, we are already encountering a problem, if you will, for Schweitzer. Last Sunday, we began by looking at the fact that too little was going on in this text by noting that Jesus is speaking only to the twelve. And I won't revisit the observations we made from that fact. That's in last Sunday's podcast or teaching, however you want to designate that offering. But today we begin again with something, as it were, right out of the box. But beware of men. Jesus does not say beware of Jews. He does not say beware of just your neighbors, just those that are around you. I do recognize that, of course, there could be a broader context that justifies that kind of interpretation of anthropon, but the context isn't there. 
And as we will see when we look into the broader context, it is very clear that what Jesus is saying here when he's describing the conflict to the 12 at this time, he isn't speaking about just those they are soon to encounter, just the Jews or just those even in this present generation. He is speaking broadly about all men. Beware of mankind. They are the wolves within whom or among whom I am sending those that I have regenerated into sheep. Beware of men. You once were from them. You may feel somewhat comfortable still among them. You may give them more credit than they deserve. Now we aren't against them. Jesus is sending us out to minister to them, but you have to do it wisely. And he says, therefore, beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. Now, in their experience, that could refer to the Sanhedrin. But within the Jewish self-determined form of political operation, which was under the governance of the Roman Empire, it wasn't autonomous, but Within the context of what the Romans allowed, the Sanhedrin was effectively their civil body. And so this stands for civil institutions. Jesus says they will deliver you up to the councils, to the civil institutions, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. They will scourge you, they will mistreat you within their religious institutions. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother, verse 21, shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the child shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And then comes the 23rd verse, but when they persecute you in this city, Flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. We cannot, my dear brothers and sisters, read that last statement of Jesus and conclude it's just a simple plain remark that they're going to go through the cities of Israel and the Son of Man is going to come in the eschatological sense. We've already established last Sunday and we'll speak more fully about the proleptic understanding of what he is stating here, but I am now manifesting to you on the other side of the wedge that there is too much going on in this text for that to be taken seriously. I've already pointed out a couple of things to you that Jesus says, beware of all men. But what I now have to impress upon your hearts is the simple reality that not only is there no evidence within the gospel record that 
any sort of sound reflective thinking realizes that this body of experiences did not occur in this journey of the twelve. Let's reflect again about what Jesus expresses as being the nature of the conflict. And notice with me that what he is talking about is clearly beyond what they themselves would experience. He is speaking through them because they are being trained toward their own ministries and he is establishing paradigms of understanding. He is manifesting and teaching them about the sort of experiences that will be typical of true kingdom preaching. And so he says, they will deliver you up to the councils. There is no evidence that any of the twelve in this journey that occurs in Matthew chapter 10 were delivered up to the councils. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 were sent, they returned and, and the Bible tells us they came back with joy. And I recognize it's possible that they could have been arrested and released. I get that. I don't even discount that there could have been experiences of opposition. I grant that no doubt there were experiences of opposition. And I'm not even saying that no one was arrested and brought before the council. I don't believe that they were. I don't personally think there's any reason to think that they were, especially the original 12, and nor do I think it happened to the 70, for you will forgive me for saying that the disciples, even in Luke chapter 10, were still relatively shallow. Do not forget that all of them forsook Jesus at Calvary. They were relatively shallow. I do not think they would have returned with joy if they, during their missionary journey, as it were, I'm using that loosely, it's a training session, actually. It's a trial trip. It's to get them to try out what it's like to go out and represent Jesus. Jesus knew how to do it well, but he was going to go to the Father and he was going to send the Holy Spirit to empower them in order to continue to do and to teach what he began to do and teach. And he has to train them. He has to mentor them into his ministry. And so he starts with 12. Then he expands it to 17. We understand in Acts chapter 2, there's a sense in which it's broadened out to 120. And we will have more to say about that in a little bit. What I'm saying to you is that there's no evidence that they were brought before civil institutions. There is no evidence that they were scourged in the synagogues. Perhaps I didn't conclude my remark, but if either the 12 or the 70 had experienced these sorts of things, they likely would have made reference to it in one way or another. And I'm not going to create the narratives that we would discover. I don't mind doing that if I were writing a book but in the interest of what I'm doing presently, I'm not going to digress into those sort of footnotes. Think about it on your own. I think it's quite obvious that they would not have simply returned with that sort of amazement and said, even the demons are subject onto us. They were surprised that that occurred. Had they experienced the kind of persecution this is talking about, they would have been 
perhaps completely befuddled. They would have thought it strange concerning the fiery trial which was trying them, even though Jesus plainly tells them. And this just manifests what we're talking about is that they needed, and we do as well, brothers and sisters, we need to be trained into our ministries. He said, you shall be brought before governors and kings. Now think about that for a moment. Governors and kings are certainly Gentiles. The governors and the kings would be Gentiles. And of course, it's possible in the broad realm of just sheer possibility, if we think about this without factoring God in, which my heart does not, of course, but I'm just, a, I'm just engaging with my interlocutors and saying, if you want a world where God almost isn't even there, is it possible that they could have been brought before Pilate or before some Caesar, you know, before Caesar or something to that effect? The, the reality, what I'm saying is, is number one, their ministry was limited to the Jews. Number two, they weren't going outside the environs of Palestine and going all over the world and being brought before governors and kings and bringing a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, right? It says in the text, you will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony, King James says against them, I've already made the point that the Greek is not saying against them, it is to them. I might make more of a point about that in a little bit, but against them and the Gentiles. You follow what I'm saying. They were told not to go to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, well, as a matter of fact, they didn't experience that. Almost none of it, if any of it. Amen? You follow what I'm saying? But when they deliver you up, do you not see with me, there's too much going on here that Jesus is aware of, unless you're going to say that he got this wrong too. He didn't just get the Son of Man's return wrong. He got all of this prediction wrong on both sides of the equation. He sent them to too few people, forgot all about the other sheep and all the prophecies about the Gentiles, hearing the gospel, a light coming into darkness, as we discussed last Sunday. And then he predicted all of these things would occur, which even a sensible person would know it couldn't occur if you just told them not to go to the Gentiles. So this is making a fool out of Jesus that's why I stated it is a blasphemous interpretation. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. Again, isn't that beautiful that this post hey, la laceta. Dear brothers and sisters, do you understand? The Bible teaches us don't think about how you're going to represent yourself. Not only the words, but how are you going to do it? From whence are you going to get the power, the presence of mind, the nerve, the courage? He does not just say, don't premeditate the words. He says, don't premeditate the mechanism. Don't premeditate from whence you're going to get the ability to represent Jesus before the kings and the Gentiles. That's why you should go out, as some of us do. We just go out to work. We just go out to our various callings and aspects of life. And then we meet people and we just trust the Lord to show us how and what to say. That's what we must be doing, brothers and sisters. He says, for it will be given you in the same hour, what you will speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. I would submit to you 
that these 12 had yet an awful lot to learn, leaving aside actually receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit, as they did in Acts chapter 2. They had an awful lot to learn, to know how to understand how to work and flow with the Spirit. And so this is a training session. He is passing on to them, as it were, the manual for witnessing, some of which they will experience, a lot of which they won't. It's a very limited exercise that the 12 originally experience or enter into. And then verse 21, think about whether the 12 experienced this array of difficulty as expressed in verse 21. And the brother shall deliver the brother to death. Well, if it just applies to the 12, I guess that means that James is going to turn John in and Peter is going to turn Andrew in. If it's natural biological brothers, if it's spiritual brothers, I guess they're all going to turn each other in because there's only 12 he's speaking to. And if we're supposed to take this literally as opposed to naturally and fairly and honestly, which is the way we interpret, as I've already stated, carnal literary works. If you're going to take it, it means this and nothing else, then it means that the disciples are going to be turning each other in. You say, well, maybe there's a hint of a message there. Yeah, there is a hint. But there's a whole broad gap between the hints of the deeper principles that are working there that are to be spiritually understood and applied in our deep spiritual messages and this bland literalism. Amen? Because yes, there was a Judas among them who would turn some in, and that's a factor we need to understand. That some who are among us may prove to not really be of us, and not only do they go out from us, but they might then turn against us. And we need to understand that. So... We are wise as we minister for Jesus Christ. The brother shall deliver up the brother to death, the father the child. So what does this mean? Zebedee's going to enter in and turn over James and John? And the children shall rise up against the parents. You see where I could keep saying and doing here, right? And cause them to be put to death. And then this, you will be hated of all men. Now you weaken what Jesus is saying to your detriment. If you say, well, all the men that you presently encounter, we will make use of what Jesus is saying here and emphasize some things. And we already have effectively, actually from the very first study, we have made some of these remarks, but we will reemphasize them. But Jesus is saying the time will come when all men will hate you. Virtually all men will hate you. In other words, every city to which the gospel goes will eventually turn against that gospel and persecute those that witness to it. That day has not occurred yet. But Jesus speaks about that phenomenon in the 23rd verse in a germinal, seminal, stylistic way. And that's why he says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. You feel the magnanimity of that statement? That's not a trivial remark that he made to the twelve and he just meant it for them. Do you follow what I'm saying? Listening to his language, he is not a hyperbolic, extravagant, uh, sensational speaker. When he says, he that endures to the end shall be saved, he doesn't mean if you go through the journey here that I'm sending you on and make it to the end, you're going to be saved. He's saying, 
This is the teaching I'm beginning to instruct you 12 with that I will then expand to the 70 and then it should go to the 120 and then to everyone who comes into the kingdom of God and is going to represent the gospel of the kingdom. You need to understand that you have to um, enter into this with a commitment toward enduring to the end. But when they persecute you in this city, give up or change the message. Compromise so you can stay. Jesus is teaching them. He is instructing them. This is an exercise by which to learn how to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he's giving them, as I say, an example that they would impart experience, but only seminally, only germinally. If when you 12 go out through the cities of Israel and you experience persecution and opposition, and in some respects, it's up to them, isn't it, to determine whether or not this is the sort of persecution and opposition that merits that we leave the city, perhaps wipe the dust off our feet and go to the next. But Jesus does say, when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man come. In that I will revisit that remark in our application and reinforce things that we've already said. I'll make no further comment on that at the moment. But I will give you this quotation from John Calvin, who does not agree with my eschatological framework, but he is, on balance, a very straightforward, honest, and trustworthy expositor in most questions. And on this particular text, Calvin says, and I quote, The contest of which Christ forewarns the apostles must not be limited to the first journey in which they met nothing of this description. Let me read that again. The contests of which Christ forewarns the apostles. In other words, the conflicts that they would encounter must not be limited to the first journey in which they met nothing of this description. So there is far too much going on for these to be taken as just plain words that Jesus thought with all his heart would go just the way he stated it, and there's no depth, there's no prophetic dimension to it, there's no proleptic element, it's just what he thought was going to happen. And lo and behold, bummer, it didn't. Well, we turn then to application, and this will occupy us until the conclusion of this study, which gives me great hope that we will actually finish this afternoon. Clearly, Matthew 10 and verse 23, which I grant... Is a somewhat tricky text, but if it is approached reverently with the dependence of our hearts upon the Holy Spirit, coupled with due diligence in our own study, studying to show ourselves approved and rightly dividing the word of truth, then we can see that Matthew 10.23 clearly is not the official commencement of the apostles' ministries. To the contrary, the sending out of the 12 and the sending out of the 70 are trial trips, training exercises, simulations of what they will do and experience. 
What I'm emphasizing at this moment, and will build from this observation, further application for our lives, is indeed what we've stated from the very first study and reinforced all along, but I am clearly stating that not only is Schweitzer wrong in so many dimensions of how he reads the text, the fact of the matter is this was not even the official commencement of their ministries. This was a training exercise. And therefore, the limitations are acceptable. The limitations that we observed last Sunday in terms of only going to the Jews and not to the Gentiles and not to the Samaritans. It is acceptable that that was the case, that Jesus sent them out in that way because this is not the official commencement of their ministries. And similarly, the hyperbole is acceptable because it's instructive. The hyperbole is the word that I'm using to stand for all the things that Jesus said that they would encounter in terms of the conflict that would occur as you go out and preach the name of the Lord Jesus and declare the gospel of the kingdom in all the cities of Israel. And, and then, of course, that stands for any field of labor to which God sends you. The hyperbole, the things that they did not experience, is acceptable. It isn't dishonest. It isn't misleading. It's acceptable. Why? Because this was not the official commencement of the apostles' ministries. This was a training exercise in which they were told a number of things, much of which they would not presently in this little journey through the cities of Israel experience, but they needed to know that this is what you're being trained for. This is what you're being trained toward. This is what you will ultimately encounter if you succeed and submit to the training exercises and then ultimately get truly empowered and commissioned and sent out to do the real work, if you will. Now, I am not saying that when they went throughout the 12, when the 12 went throughout the cities of Israel or when the 70 went before Jesus face and preached in various places that he himself was to come to, that there wasn't anything being accomplished, that it was all artificial and fake. Of course I'm not saying that. The training was, in some sense, hands-on and real, like in a work-study program where you go on a job and you actually build a house if you are in a tech environment and you're learning to be a carpenter. It's all real, but you're not yet licensed to go out on your own and build your own homes. It's a training exercise. It'll therefore be limited. And some of the things you're told about in class will be beyond what you actually experience. You may not even build a set of stairs, but you will be told about how to figure out what the rise and the run will be for a certain set of stairs, for example. That this kind of observation, this kind of interpretation was overlooked by Schweitzer and many others, Richel and Weiss and so on, that it was looked over by these indicates that they're coming to the text with a cynical disposition, which is to say unsaved. And so having pointed out that this is not the official commencement of the apostles' ministry, we need to look on the other side of the coin 
and state very clearly that training becomes trivial if the details of the training are entirely ditched. Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 12, and Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the 70, have a variable of numbers in terms of how many went out, but there is no variable of instruction. The nature of the instructions that Jesus gave to the 12 and the 70, the manual that he put in their hands and the content of that manual is parallel, virtually identical. Allow me to express to you some of the major components of what that manual had within it. And let me restate for reinforcement, I am doing this and will develop this thought. Just stay with me in your thinking. I am saying for application purposes that even though this was not the official sending out of the apostles' ministry, it was clearly intentional training. And therefore, the training, if it does not embody things that ought to continue in the actual ministries of the apostles and all those who then following the apostles represent the kingdom, if the nature of their training and the details of their training can somehow be ditched, that it doesn't make any difference anymore, that it doesn't apply any longer, then the training has been rendered trivial. So you may not be Albert Schweitzer, but depending on how you understand this text and how it finds application in your life, you, my dear brother or sister, might be doing something dangerously close to Schweitzer and making Jesus look like a fool. That I trained the 12, I trained the 70, and maybe the 120 had a little bit to do with this, but down the road, I ditched all of these training elements, and it's a whole different thing now when you go out and represent Christ. So let me come back and state to you some of the pieces within that manual, some of the primary instructional pieces that Jesus gave to them. First of all, he establishes a place. Jesus establishes a place. Anytime Jesus commissions someone supernaturally or by the Spirit or just through the call of His Word, if the Holy Spirit is truly leading you to represent Jesus and be His witness, you do not get to determine where that place is that you function as a witness. I do state that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I grant that there's a leading of the Spirit. I'm not saying He's going to write on the wall where you're to go tomorrow and give you a street address. That's not necessary. But we should also know that Jesus assigns the field of labor. And it is not for us just to determine wherever we might wish to go. And so for the 12, Jesus said very specifically, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You do not go to the Gentiles. You do not go to the Samaritans. When Jesus commissioned the 70, he said, you go to every city to which I am going to come. Therefore, they had to have some sense of his prospective itinerary and that's exactly what they were supposed to do. And if Jesus was from the point that he gave the 70 their commission working south, they could not go north because he wasn't going there. 
And you'll recall how the Holy Spirit led Paul and told him not to go east, but to go west. And each of these elements that I'm presenting to you, you will understand they could deserve an entire teaching on their own. But I will just state some ideas for you to reflect on. But what an important principle this is and how we should reflect on the application of this principle, dear brothers and sisters, that I mean from day to day, brothers and sisters, as well as where you generally live. In other words, it's not just a question of you should not just move to wherever you feel like because God wants you to be witnessing in a particular place. But even day to day, as was my experience, for example, this last Thursday, I went to get supplies in one place. I very much wanted to witness to the gentleman that was waiting on me, but I recognized that he was engaged in a conversation and the person that was speaking to him was waiting for him to return. And I felt very much like if I just tossed out some language to him about Jesus or about the Word of God, it would be trivialized in this sort of confluence of activity. And I didn't want to do that. And so I had to restrain myself, even though I very much wanted to speak to them, him. But then only 15 minutes later, when I was at the job, I drove up the driveway and there was a truck in the driveway. And I later met the gentleman that was working as an exterminator for my customers and was able to engage with him and share with him and he with me for, oh, I don't know, whatever it was, a half hour or so. And so that's being under the guidance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the harvest, and he is describing or he is defining for me where is the place of your witness. In Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, we have that element in both places. There's no variable. There's a variable of numbers. In the one case, it's just spoken to the twelve. In the other case, it's spoken to the 70. And we can continue to vary that number and vary the people to whom it's spoken. It can be spoken to 120. It can be spoken to 500 at once. But the principles of ministry cannot be made variable. The details of what Jesus gave to them when he began to train them for ministry cannot be ditched. Jesus also met manifested himself as sovereign over their provisions. You remember with me, both in Matthew chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells them exactly what they are to do with respect to financial needs, with respect to victual needs, with respect to clothing, with respect to dwelling. Do you recall that with me? In their case, because of the limited nature of their mission, it's just a training exercise, he told them, don't bother packing your bags too much. You won't need it. This is just a training exercise. And by the way, I want you to learn how to trust me by faith. But in Luke 22, when you enter into the longer journey, the longer task, of your true ministry and the full-fledged experience of representing the kingdom to all the cities of the earth, then he says, pack your bags and get a sword. But still he is the one who determines what you take, how much you take. He gives specific instructions along those lines. So the second element is the provisions that we need in order to preach the kingdom 
we are to trust Jesus for and we are to look to him to describe to us what we should use. So in our own situation, I hope we are hearing from the Lord. My heart is striving to hear from God. And one of the things that we are implementing as a provision is a website by which in some measure to facilitate and enhance our ministry. Every little piece matters, brothers and sisters, whether you have that piece of food or that the galoshes or whatever. Just ask those that have gone out either as full-fledged missionaries or just out for the day to witness at the commons. You know, it matters whether you have the sun hat sometimes and you need to look to Jesus to describe or to guide your provisions. Then with respect to persecution, I won't spend a lot of time with this third piece of the primary elements that you would find in the manual for kingdom witnessing, but, but uh, just suffice it to say, both to the 10, excuse me, both to the 12 in Matthew chapter 10 and to the 70 in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, I send you out as sheep among wolves. So therefore, are you hearing me? The experience of persecution, when you go and represent Jesus faithfully, is not a detail that gets ditched. It is something that you should anticipate. It was a part of the training that we are to understand and, and come to terms with, if you will. And then, fourthly, power. One of the primary pieces of Jesus' instruction that we will find in the training manual can be placed within the category of power. He stipulates the place he stipulates and oversees the provisions. He acquaints us and is disclosing to us that persecution will occur. But he also states that you will have power. In Matthew chapter 10, we read, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, Cast out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. In Luke chapter 10, we have a variable, don't we? From Matthew chapter 10. The variable is a variable of numbers. But do we ditch the detail of Jesus assigning the place? Do we ditch the detail of Jesus overseeing the provisions? Do we ditch the detail of persecution occurring? No, and nor do we ditch the detail of Jesus promising power. He says, and heal those that are sick in any particular city that you come to that receives your witness and is open to the gospel of the kingdom in Luke chapter 10 and verse 9. Heal the sick that are therein and say the kingdom of God is come nigh on to you. Just before, Jesus ratifies the covenant when he goes to the cross. He addresses specifically the only detail of his training that needs to be updated. This is found in Luke chapter 22, and I've already referred to it. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus asks his disciples and says, When I sent you without purse or food supply, and shoes, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Then Jesus says to them the most 
the very important words, but now, but now, what's going to cease? I'm no longer going to tell you what place to go. That's going to cease. We're going to ditch that detail. I'm going to go away, and I'm not going to be here personally to tell you where to go. So I know you had that in your training exercise, but that's going to cease. And now with respect to provisions, well, we'll skip that for a moment and return to it. But let's come to persecution. Well, you were good chaps, weren't you? You went through the cities of Israel and you preached, you 12 and you 70, and you experienced a little bit of opposition. But I'm here to tell you that those days are over. And now you're going to go into all the cities of Israel and they're going to open up their arms wide. They're going to say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. In fact, I myself am going to come triumphantly into Jerusalem. And they're going to say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they're going to put a crown of gold upon my head. That persecution element is going to cease. And... It's also going to be the case that I realized I told you when I sent out the 12 and when I sent out the 70, I did say, lay hands on the sick. I did say, cast out demons. I did say, raise the dead. I did say, tell them that the power of the kingdom, the Son of Man, is coming proleptically as a manifestation of the great manifestation of His power that will come at the end of the age. That I, in the name of Jesus, present to you a foretaste of the delivering power of the Son of God. Yes, I did tell you that, but we're going to ditch that now. That's going to cease going forward. That is no longer going to be in the training manual. There's going to come a time either now or in the future when I send out some other grouping of people, I'm going to say the power is no longer there. That's going to cease. Such ideas, brothers and sisters, trivialize the training when you ditch the details. Why go through the effort of having parallel exactness in both situations in Matthew chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, and then in Luke chapter 22, specifically addressing the only detail that is to be updated, and that was with respect to the provisions. And what's the update? The update is, Jesus is saying, going forward, it is not going to be any longer a limited exercise. It's going to be a full-scale spiritual battle against the powers of darkness so pack up and get your spiritual sword and go out and bring your manual and do everything I was training you to do I am still sovereign over your provisions but you're going to need a script you're going to need some clothing you're going to need a sword because you're going to go into the battle itself it's not training any longer what is being updated is we're not practicing any longer we're not just planning any longer. We're not just preparing any longer. And my dear brothers and sisters, that principle itself still has application to us. Because each new generation has to go through a period of practice and planning and preparation. And that's what we do when we come to this place. We teach you the Word of God, and then you are to practice witnessing to your neighbors, even within your own home. And you need to read about other missionaries, and you need to encourage your hearts and learn the Word of God and memorize 
text and so on. And we might even go out two by two as Rick and I used to do to the Boston Commons and witness to people there. And you learn, by the way, like I had to learn, not to tell a Muslim that Muhammad is a false prophet unless you're prepared to lose your head. God spared me on that occasion. That's a story in itself. And I've had a man pick up a bar to hit me in the head. And I've had people slap me across the face more than once, brothers and sisters. So you learn what it's like to go out and represent the Lord Jesus. But I'm saying to you, the time is and the time is coming when the practice and the planning and the preparation is going to be over. And Jesus is going to send out those who have been faithful to him into the actual battle in a way that is beyond what you have presently experienced. And for those that are in keeping with the training of the 12 and the training of the 70, dear brothers and sisters, there is not going to be a ditching of the power. That detail is going to be there. Allow me to make this manifest by simply quoting to you what you won't be surprised to learn. The devil has seen to it that it is a disputed text. It is the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Well, we could get all fanciful here. We don't need to in thinking about the 12 that Jesus originally sent. And would you not know, ironically, the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel are thought to be disputed. I'm going to read some of them in just a moment, the end of Mark's gospel. But what I'm going to say to you before I do is that no matter what you think about the genuineness of the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel, the things that it speaks of certainly occurred, as is clear when you read the book of Acts, let alone, or, or the book of Acts and the entirety of the New Testament, following the gospels. Listen to the language of Mark chapter 16. Let's begin with verse 15. Jesus is speaking after his resurrection, my, my dear brothers and sisters. And he says to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that rejects and resists this message shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out demons. They will speak supernaturally with another language. They will take up serpents, which is to say if they encounter some sort of threat, some sort of deadly natural experience at a minimum, if not even other forms of threats that are somewhat beyond the natural, that is to say the animal world. It could even be personages and so on, like like uh, Alexander the coppersmith, or the copperhead, we might think of him as being. And he says, they shall take up serpents. That's a principle. That's a metaphor. That's an idea. They will be victorious over the powers of hell. They will be victorious over the things that you might encounter when you go to foreign lands and you encounter various diseases and you encounter reptiles and various things very truthfully that would that would otherwise bring fear into your hearts and perhaps stop the advancement of the kingdom. But he says, no, you're going to go forward with power and this is going to be your experience. And he says, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. There again, that covers a range of things, everything from making a mistake and drinking the wrong thing or perhaps being purposely poisoned and 
God will preserve you. You say, does it have to happen all the time? No, not all the time. I mean, every time you try to cast out a demon, it might not go. Every time you lay hand on us, lay hands on someone who is sick, they might not be healed. We are not perfect instruments. Jesus is a perfect Jesus. He's the faithful and true witness. We might not have a perfect record. So what? I don't mean that as so what. I mean that as so what? Give up? No longer follow your master and seek to continue to do and teach as he didn't teach, taught? No, dear brothers and sisters, not at all. Let me continue to read here. He says, they shall lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. And then we read, so then the Lord, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the words with signs following. Confirming the word with signs following. I am submitting, my dear brothers and sisters, to you that when Jesus trained the twelve and included a power ministry, certainly regulated by his lordship, certainly nothing like the confusion that is often manifested in that which calls itself the charismatic community. But nonetheless, when Jesus sent out the twelve, he sent them out with power. When he sent out the 70, he sent them out with power. After his resurrection, he specifically sends them out again and he broadens the field of ministry. He speaks generically. Still, each of us needs to know what place we go to, but he speaks generically and says, go into all the world and preach to every creature. And he says, anywhere you go, you will be taken care of supernaturally, protected from snakes and deadly beverages and so on. And he says, lay hands on the sick and they will recover. He says, if you believe, you will speak in another language supernaturally. And then if they believe your gospel, then they too will speak in another language supernaturally. If Jesus wanted these things to cease, he would have specifically stated as much because he is a cessationist. He's a cessationist in Luke chapter 22. But the cessationist perspective, the cessationism that Jesus speaks of is in the opposite direction of the cessation of power. What I, he is speaking about as ceasing, as I've already stated, is he is acquainting his disciples that the time of simple preparation, just limited exercises, just training at church, that's going to cease so that I can send you out into the real battle because the kingdom of heaven is going to suffer in a spiritual conflict. And those that are prepared to enter into that conflict, what we could call the violent, they are going to be contenders marching into the battle. They are going to take it by force. And so if you're hearing what I'm saying, Jesus is just pointing out that the mentoring, the relative kind of um, safety net that you have through the mentoring experience 
which is proper, which is necessary, which we want to advocate as a church, which in some senses we still are within. But brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, we need to get with the program because it's going to need, need to be more than just the pastor. I hope to God the pastor himself is prepared. But I'm saying to you, it needs to be more than just the pastor. You could be left behind when Jesus sends us out two by two or four by four or however it all works and and says now you go bring that gospel out and you declare the power of the kingdom and you lay hands on the sick and you encounter the demon possessed you don't run away from them you bring the gospel to them and you cast out those demons and you baptize people in the name of Jesus as did the apostles Oh, brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, when you reflect on what we're talking about here, that's why I don't have a problem with looking into Matthew 10, 23. This set of thoughts is the justification with which I worked from the beginning as to why enter into this excursus. Because I see it, as I've already told you, and I have a little more to go through now, I see it as one of the profoundest statements against cessationism and against replacement theology. I'll state it one more time and then I'll move on to another observation. If he sent them with the element of power, attending their ministries, along with the other constants of place, provision, and persecution, if he sent them in Luke chapter 10, with the element of power attending their ministries, if after his resurrection, he then confirms that they are to go now and use that training out into all the world, all the world, for what, the next couple of generations? For what, until Constantine comes into power and the Edict of Milan is written and inscribed in 313 AD, and now, oh, I guess because the canon of Scripture is completed, even though the gospel hasn't gone to the four corners of the earth, even though there are still sick people and demonly oppressed people, and people who still need the experience of the Holy Spirit so they themselves can then branch out into their own ministries. The fact that the canon is completed, brothers and sisters, has no particular bearing on those that are supposed to preach the canon and represent that canon and witness that canon. And if that was a variable that Jesus knew would come to a point of ceasing, he would have spoken about it directly. We see in Luke 22, he speaks about the element, the single element that was to be updated, and that is actually in the opposite direction of away from power. He's saying, oh, you're going to enter into the kingdom conflict now, so pack your bags and get a sword. Pretty silly, wouldn't it be? Pack your bag, get a sword, go out, face the devil everywhere, but go out without any power. And so once the official commission begins, it must continue to the end. Let's not take too much time with this particular observation. But when Jesus says that you will not go through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, and he tells you that if they persecute you in one city, then flee to the next. The implication being, if they persecute you, ultimately then in the city to which you flee, fled, then flee to the next. Because I'm telling you, you will not have gone throughout all the cities of your assigned field of labor before the Son of Man comes. And we've already seen in a proleptic fulfillment of his coming, that can be experienced through the power of the kingdom, healing the sick and casting out demons. Amen? 
But with respect to the eschatological coming of the Son of Man, the actual coming of the Son of Man, of the Daniel 7.13 coming of the Son of Man, are you hearing what I'm saying? What the Bible is saying is once the official commission begins, you must continue it to the end. You must go from city to city to city and endure to the end. Endure persecution. Do not get discouraged. If in one city you are resisted and the situation comes about whereby you can no longer continue ministering in that place, then you go to the next city and you preach the same gospel. You do not compromise the gospel of the kingdom. You do not just go into hiding and you do not just develop a community of safety and you build walls around you so that you can have your Christianity without any conflict from the culture. Are you listening to what I'm saying? It gets well beyond what I can cover in this teaching, but some of you will remember some of my remarks in the past about the Pilgrim Fathers, who I do not denigrate. But the question remains, why did you flee from England to Holland, then from Holland to the New World, if it was to simply get away from persecution and find safety? That's the wrong motive. If you could not preach in scurvy any longer, if you could not preach in Leiden any longer, and you only could continue your ministry by going somewhere else, then fine. But what will you do when you come to the new world? Settle down and build houses and plant yourself and get awfully comfy? No, brothers and sisters, Jesus says you keep preaching this kingdom till the end. You go to every city. You do the work of the Lord in that place for as long as you can until the resistance cannot be born any longer and then you flee to the next and you do it there as well. That's the point. That's what Matthew 10, 23 is about. It's not about ceasing the ministry. It's about the call to continue the ministry. And so the question becomes this. It's real simple when you understand it. Has the Son of Man come? If the answer is no, then there must therefore be another quote-unquote city of Israel to go to. There's another city within your assigned field of ministry for you to go to. If this is not the case, if Jesus has not returned, and yet you feel like, well, we've gone everywhere. We've covered it all. The entire state, the entire United States, the entire North Americas, the entire Northern Hemisphere, the entire globe has heard the gospel. There's nowhere else to go. What I'm saying to you is Jesus is saying, if the Son of Man hasn't come, it's because you haven't yet brought the gospel of the kingdom to all the cities of your assigned field of labor. There's still work to do. And if you think that that is not true, you say, well, I think we've brought the gospel to everywhere we can think think of, then one of two things is occurring. Either you are not proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and therefore you're not being persecuted. You are accommodating yourself to the culture. You are compromising the Christian message. Therefore, the various places on this earth are accepting your quote-unquote Christianity, 
and you spread yourself multiple miles wide at only a few inches thick and you're canvassing, so you think, the entire globe with the Christian message and you're feeling like there's just a few other places to go in some back place in the Asias and then we'll be through with it. My dear brothers and sisters, the way that Jesus presents it is that you will bring this gospel. It may have reception. I'm not stating it can't have reception for a long period of time. I don't govern those things. But the point that Jesus is saying, going back to what we read earlier, the time will come when you will be hated of all men. And he meant all. If you have a right eschatology and you understand the era of the rise of Antichrist, you will recognize the time is coming when every city of the earth will not abide the message of the gospel. It will be persecuted in every city of the earth. It won't persecute the great whore that rides the beast, but it will persecute the man-child. It will persecute the true representatives of the kingdom. And so if you feel as though you have brought this gospel out to everywhere you can think of and yet the Son of Man hasn't come. It's a hint that maybe you're not really preaching the kingdom and experiencing the persecution which then will drive you to the next place and that will then then truly advance the kingdom. Or you lack endurance and you're fleeing too soon. You're either not preaching the gospel where you're presently located And you're just giving them a little message about there's a guy named Jesus who wants to make your life more fun. Raise your hand, walk an aisle, put some money in the coffer, and we'll sign you up. And lo and behold, we sent out a questionnaire far and wide about what do you want in a church, and and the unregenerate told us what they want in Christianity, and so we gave it to them. And marvel of marvels, miracle of miracles, when you give people what they want, they actually come and take it. And Christianity is all throughout the United States. It's all throughout Europe. Once upon a time, people thought that way. All of Europe was Christianized. Others had the sense to know that that couldn't possibly be the case. We're not looking for persecution. We're not trying to stir up opposition. But Jesus sets a paradigm and says, this is the way it will go. I'll send you out. Go to a city. Preach the gospel. Bring the power of the kingdom. The devil will oppose it. Sometimes you'll be where Satan's seat is, like in Pergamos, and you will experience conflict. But not if you just go there and you just sort of give expositions about theological reflections. I mean, that is somewhat challenging or somewhat, you know, disturbing but there's nothing like bringing the power of the kingdom into the, into, the, into the devil's environs. You will experience the opposition of the spiritual powers. And Jesus says to those who minister that way, you need endurance. You need to just stay and keep preaching. Because if you flee to the next, why don't we just flee to some other place? Why don't I just flee to some other place? Because I would be fleeing too soon. In other words, Jesus says... If they begin to oppose you, well, no, he didn't say that. Let me make it clear. Jesus says, if they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. He did not say, if you experience some form of resistance, flee. I suppose wisdom tells me that it isn't beneficial for me to linger long on making this point at this moment, so I won't, as interested as I am in elucidating it. But it is true that Jesus practiced the preservation of life 
On many occasions, we're told that Jesus departed out of Galilee. He withdrew himself. He departed from somewhere else by ship. He departed into the coast of Tyre and Zidon. I could give you multiple texts that talk about Jesus hiding himself and preserving life, but only for further proclamation so he could go somewhere else and preach this gospel. It is true that Paul was let down by a basket out of Damascus in order to preserve his life. It is true that he was sent to Tarsus by the disciples in order to preserve his life. It is true that after Peter escaped prison, he was secretly relocated into Caesarea. But it's also true that everywhere that Jesus went and everywhere that Paul went and everywhere that Peter went, they continued to proclaim the gospel and experience persecution there as well. And so Paul nearly runs into the Colosseum in Ephesus, if you recall with me, in Acts chapter 19. This isn't a man that heard Jesus as saying, if you experience a little bit of persecution, then stop your witness and testimony. Clam up, run, seek shelter, calm down, flee to some other place to share the word. Don't be a fool and get your life under any sort of threat. You have to balance this out, brothers and sisters. Wisdom as a serpent is not to be equated with the timidity of a mouse. The Bible says the wicked flee when no man's pursuing you to speak of, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I recognize there's a foolishness. Jesus speaks against that when he says, be as wise as serpents, but that's not the same thing as being the quiet in the land. And I'm saying that if you feel like, well, my neighborhood has heard about Jesus, my family has heard about Jesus, this area has heard about Jesus, where next? This is easy. It might be that you're leaving places far too quickly because you're experiencing a little bit of resistance. Yes, Jesus knew to preserve life, but in order to proclaim that gospel somewhere else. Do you get the difference? The motive isn't preservation of your own skin in ease of life. The motive is a calculation. If I need to abide with the rest of you and that's better for you and for the lost, for me to be here and preach this gospel, then I will endure all things for the elect's sake. I'm not preserving my life just so I can have an ease of experience. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Well, I want to complete this study. With all my heart, I want to complete it, so I'm going to push the limits a little bit. And I want to finalize our study by stating the other principle that Jesus beautifully addresses when he says, you will not have gone throughout all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And in shorthand, I'll tell you it as I've alluded to it already in the past. Jesus, who knows his eschatology, knows that the gospel of the kingdom is going to come to the Jew first and after that to the Gentiles. That's the principle, to the Jew first, and after that, the Gentiles. Do you remember Romans 1.16? To the Jew first, and after that, to the Gentiles. But guess what Jesus also says? He says, they that are first shall be last, and they that are last shall be first. And it turns out the application of this with respect to the Jews, national Jewry, and again, Jewish people in general, and the location of Israel itself, where the Jews were inhabiting, living, you know, under Roman-occupied Israeli territory, the gospel went to the Jew first, did it not? Matthew chapter 10. But they were not the first to repent. They're going to be the last to repent. 
To some to whom the gospel came first, they're going to be the last to repent, but they will repent by the mercy of God. The power of the gospel will ultimately have an effect on the Jewish nation. This effort to go into the cities of Israel, dear brothers and sisters, it was not a waste of time. It was not a plan that will be forfeited. It is not something that the powers of Satan will render completely inoperative. The time will come in the long suffering of God after the gospel went to the Jew first and they rejected it. Then God brings it to the Gentiles. They get it last, but they are the first to repent. And we could look at a number of texts. We will not do that, but we will look at one particular text which will show us very clearly if you have a right eschatological framework in mind that in the end of this age the gospel is going to return to the cities of Israel and after the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled then this gospel is going to come back to the cities of Israel a ministry is going to come specifically to the Jewish people and indeed to the Jewish nation and it's in that time frame when this gospel is working its way through all the cities of Israel, that the Son of Man is going to come, and He will come in the full fulfillment of what Matthew 10.23 speaks of proleptically. In other words, the gospel will come to them. Persecution will arise, and spiritual conflict will be like it's never been before. It'll be the time of Jacob's trouble, and part of it will be because, will be because this is where Satan's seat is. This is where Antichrist has set himself up, showing himself that he is God. But the gospel will be contesting that among the Jews and manifesting him as an idol shepherd, as a false Christ. And those that embrace the living Jesus, those that are granted the spirit of grace and supplication and see that they have turned against their own Messiah, they will, some of them, embrace Jesus before he returns. The Bible speaks either directly or figuratively of 144,000 out of the tribes of Israel that will be sealed in the last day. Why? Because they come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, dear brothers and sisters. But when that persecution and all that environment is so hotly against them, like a, fur, a burning furnace of fire, then the Son of Man will appear as he did with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego but this time out of the heavens itself he will come and he will deliver the Jewish people it's Matthew 10 23 both understood proleptically in the limited manifestation within which the 12 were presently under and the beautiful full eschatological sense that Jesus is speaking of there are so many texts here so many texts my dear brothers and sisters when Peter in 1st Peter chapter 4 in verse 17, who is writing in 64 to 65 AD. Every serious Bible student understands that that's the case. Peter, 1 Peter, is written in 64 or 65 AD. Do you recognize that 65 comes before 66? In 66 AD, the first Jewish Roman war commenced, which eventuated into the destruction of the temple. 
And Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 says, The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? The richness of this application alone deserves a series of comments that I cannot garner it with. But while there is a general principle that is applicable from what Peter says, it is also a deep insight to realize that Peter as a Jew and by the Spirit is saying the time has come when the judgment is going to start at the house of God. The Jews and the cities of the Jews in the first experience of the preaching of the gospel, they rejected, these cities rejected the preaching of the gospel and a proleptic experience of the judgment of God that all cities that reject the gospel is about to be manifest in the destruction of the religious institutions with their edifices and their facades and their religious hypocrisy were judged in 70 AD. Do you understand what I'm saying? And if God deals so with the nation of Israel, his own people. What will the end be of those Gentile cities and peoples that then experience the preaching of the gospel? But sooner or later, as most cities have done, including virtually every city in these United States, they reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true preaching of the kingdom. They reject it. They're in one form or another of cessationism. Either a full-fledged, let's cease from Jesus altogether, or a form of godliness, denying the power thereof. And as a result, they are rejecting the Christ that was preached, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and has power over the oppression of the devil. Jeremiah, speaking of such things in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah says prophetically, speaking for God, For lo, I begin to bring evil on this city, Jerusalem, which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, Gentile nations? You shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, when Jesus said that the sign of Jonah would be given to this generation, I believe even there, there is a deep implication that is embedded in that remark. You may find it perhaps in your taste to be a bit too allegorical or spiritualizing, but I do not. It must obviously be the case, would it not be clear, that if the sign of Jonah is applicable to Jesus, Jesus, then the narrative must flip. Who is the rebel in this particular version of the story? So with respect to the sign of Jonah as it pertains to Jesus, Jesus is not the one who is running away from God. It's the Ninevites who are running away from God, which is to say it's the Jews that are run away, running away from God. And is, is Jesus who is not being thrown overboard and 
and then arbitrarily or shockingly experiencing the swallowing up of, in this case, the fish prepared by God. No, it is Jesus who is not a rebel like Jonah, who instead of not going to the Ninevites, which are not a pleasant people, but Jesus comes to redeem us. He, he is obedient. He comes willingly to do the will of the Father. A body is prepared for him. He doesn't care for the sinfulness of the Ninevites. Who would? I'm saying sinners. I'm saying Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners. Jesus is a Jonah that takes up the prophetic assignment given to him, but he goes into the belly of the earth by choice, not as a way of getting him to fulfill God's calling, forcing him into obedience. No, he is obedient unto death, and he enters into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights by choice, brothers and sisters. But in both accounts of what I'm sharing with you in this sign of Jonah, do you not remember with me that Jonah was given a second chance to fulfill his prophetic ministry. Jonah rebelled and did not go to Nineveh and God put him in the belly of the fish and then brought him out and then said, okay, Jonah, now I'm going to speak to you a second time. And then Jonah went to Nineveh, did he not? And he preached the gospel to them, did he not? And they repented, did they not? To everyone's surprise, is that not true? Well, the sign of Jonah is working in Jesus' life, but the plot has a change of character and that is to say that the emphasis of the rebels are on we, the sinners, the Ninevites, the Jews, the Gentiles, and Jesus is going to come. Now let's speak specifically about the Jews because that's the sign that he was giving to the Jews. They asked him for a sign. Are you listening to me? And he said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. And I'm trying to say to you that alone is a hint toward that the rejection of the gospel that Jesus brought to them first, brought him by choice into the experience of crucifixion, being thrown overboard into the sea and the will of the people and then swallowed up into the belly of the earth. But then the Ninevites themselves through rebellion are going to be swallowed up by the beast that cometh out of the sea, the Antichrist system, and they're going to experience though they thought they would have a time of peace and making a covenant with the Antichrist, ultimately at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, the Antichrist is going to spit them out and then they are going to have a chance to repent and Jesus is going to bring the spirit of grace and supplication and so the sign of Jonah is going to work with the Jews. They will get a second chance to respond to the gospel and to the surprise of everyone, to the surprise of all the replacement theologians, to the surprise of those who hear me and think I'm a lunatic, that I am mad, that much learning hath made me mad. You're going to discover that the Jews are going to repent and they're going to nationally come into faith in Jesus Christ, not to every single person, but all of Israel is going to be touched with salvation. And then the Son of Man is going to come. And I want to close, though I had so much I wanted to share out of this portion, but I'm going to limit myself to something or other. I don't know what it will be. But in Revelation chapter 11, this is just one witness to the truth that I'm speaking of. I will say parenthetically that though I am fully persuaded of these truths and am deeply invested in their veracity, 
It is not my position that if you raise your voice, you win the argument. That's not my position. I'm just heralding and preaching the gospel. So I say to all of you, I say to our listeners, that I fully grant that truth is only arrived at through sound exegesis and rightly dividing the word of truth. And as I said last Sunday, I say again, and will always say, I am more than willing to sit at an Acts 15 table, if you will, with other brothers and sisters who understand the word and discuss these issues and see what the Holy Spirit has to say about these matters from the word of God. So I recognize that there's a much broader conversation that would necessarily have to be taken if I was speaking to the churches at large with all of the participants in this conversation, for they would have multiple verses and other angles of reflection that they feel mitigate against the conclusions that I've arrived at. But nonetheless, I still have a position just like you. Don't, don't I? And you believe in your position and I believe in mine. They can't all be true. If that's the case, let's just drop everything. But in any event, what I'm trying to say here and I close with, I want to give you in closing one strong biblical witness to the truth that I just expressed to you, that the gospel is going to come to Israel in the end times. And then the Son of Man is going to come. It's in Revelation chapter 11. Let's begin with verse 1. This is an unveiling, an apocalypsis. This is a, an unveiling of what is to come. And we read this, And there was given me a reed, a measuring device like a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure what? The temple. Where is the temple? In Israel, among the Jews. Measure the temple of God. Measure the what? The altar. This has to do with Jews. And them that worship therein. Not Gentile churches. The temple. The altar. Jews. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. If this was not speaking of the Jews prior to that remark, it's obviously clear because there is a specific demarcation of the Gentiles over against the Jews. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot for three and a half years. And I will give power, the power of the kingdom, my dear brothers and sisters, you know that thing we've been talking about out of Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10 and Mark 16 and Acts chapter 2? Here we're all the way at the end and the gospel needs to be preached again. And he says, I will give power onto my two witnesses and they will prophesy three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Does that not sound like Zechariah 12 and verse 10? They will have a message of repentance. Two special witnesses will be in Israel and will be preparing God's people for the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And we read about how judgments will be visited upon those that are opposed, that oppose them. And then we read in verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, when they will have moved through all the cities of Israel, they're obviously experiencing opposition, right? Because they have to judge people along the way. Just like in Matthew 10. Amen? Persecution? Trusting God? Operating with power? Going throughout the cities of the Israel? And I'm sure it won't be just these two that are witnessing, but they will be the primary ministers that are manifesting the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. Listen to what, what is said in verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, 
The beast of that city will persecute them out of it. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and will overcome them and will kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Is there any doubt where we're talking about? We're talking about Jerusalem. And they of the people and the kindred and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell on the earth, it seems, does it not, as if whatever this witness was centered now in Israel has somewhat of an echo effect into all the world, all the cities of the earth are hearing something of what these two witnesses are doing. But in Israel, the new center of the preaching of the gospel is in Israel. But this new, quote-unquote, new center is occurring at the end of the age. And so it's true to say the gospel will begin in Israel and it will end in Israel. It will, in fact, be the case that this gospel will go throughout all the cities of Israel, experience persecution. And even in this occurrence of series of events, I will leap forward a little bit and say they were obviously preaching the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, were they not, to the Jews in Jerusalem in the end times. And they were no doubt being laughed at and scorned at, as was Paul when he talked about the resurrection and about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascended and his session at the right hand of God. Are you following what I'm saying? And if you're hearing this, then guess what happens to the two witnesses? They manifest within their own bodies. They fill up that which was left behind in some limited but remarkable sense of the sufferings of Christ. They themselves are killed, not buried, but they are killed and left on the surface of the earth. But after three days, much like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, their bodies are revived by the Spirit of God. They stand up on their feet and they are ascended up into heaven. And if you don't think that'll have a powerful confirmation that'll have a powerful confirming effect upon those that have heard the gospel of the kingdom that hearts will then be broken and they will mourn apart among themselves and they'll be ready to receive their Lord and Savior with much faith and, and uh, obedience dear brothers and sisters oh it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful I just conclude by reminding you that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. As some men count slackness, He is long-suffering to us and to the Jews, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The kind of eschatological interpretation that men like Schweitzer and even preterism and historicism, as far as I'm concerned, that kind of eschatological interpretation is somewhat driven by the riddle of how it can be so long before Jesus has returned. So you're almost compelled to try to find some other way of thinking of it as opposed to a futurist interpretation. But I believe that you make a big mistake I believe that there are things that have occurred that are proleptic foretaste of the full grand event, much like 70 AD was absolutely a prophesied, but nonetheless proleptic manifestation of the final judgments of God. I'm saying to you that judgment did begin at the house of God, and it could have been the end. I grant justly it could have been the end. We've already said all of that. But God 
Brothers and sisters, God is merciful. God is merciful. There's a lot of cattle in Israel. Don't laugh. God is merciful. And he's going to go back to the Jewish people. And he's going to fulfill all of his promises. And only because of his grace, not because of their desert, but because of his mercy and grace, after the times of the Gentiles are done, and they themselves also sadly fail from city after city after city. And it seems like we're seeing some of that on our own time. But then the gospel is going to go back to Israel. The delay is proof of God's long suffering. But yet a little while. And he that comes will come and will not tarry. Why don't you stand with me?